Hi, this is Will Hatcher. I'm here with my co-host, Bruce McDonald, and this is Academics of PA. Hey, Will, how's it been going? Hanging in there, hanging in there. <laughs> but when we had our initial episode where we were talking about who our ideal you know, guests were, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned is that you had wanted to be able to have Don Kettle on the show. And so I'm excited they're actually able to do that here for our third episode. Yeah, we have uh, today Don Kettle. Don is a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Policy, Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he serves as the academic director for the LBJ Center in Washington, D.C. And Don, I've been a I've been a fan of your work since I read Systems Under Stress when I was an MPA student myself. So uh, <laughs> it's a great book. Uh, we we are actually having our students right now in our Homeland Security class read that. It's part of our MPA program, and we in our department here at Augusta University, we have a Master's of Security Studies also, uh-huh. and we have students in both programs, and they're they're loving it. They really enjoy the book. So uh, thanks for coming on the show and talking with us. A pleasure. It's good talking and have a chance to be able to talk with you, and I ought to tell you one story with that. When As I was in the process of writing the first edition of that book, I ended up with a, a kind of serious health scare and ended up in the hospital for a while. And they finally released me, but gave me a fair amount of medication to try to take care of the stuff afterwards. And on one of the chapters, I was very, very heavily medicated. So my <laughs> quiz for the students always is trying to see if they can guess which chapter it was. So you could give your students that quiz to try to figure out which, uh, which chapter I was kind of spaced out as I was writing. <laughs> I'll have to see. I'll have to do that and see if I can guess the chapter first before I give it to him. <laughs> well, now I have to know which chapter is it. So I'm not going to tell you. You just have to guess. <laughs> I'll go run and get the book right now. We may have to, we have to do it on here. We do have a lightning round, or we have in the past on this podcast. We may need to have some questions related to that in the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe once it comes live, give people the opportunity to respond back what chapter they think it is, and then see if we can get you to admit, at least on Twitter, which chapter it was. To see if they would guess. I would only guess, I'd already admit to it if it turned out to be a chapter they liked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that case, we'll make sure we have somebody for each individual chapter saying, I really like this chapter, it has to be it. Thinking about the podcast, one of the things that we're kind of interested in is is in people's backgrounds in terms of why they went into the field, but also kind of this connection that they have between what they are interested in, in terms of their expertise as an academic, but also how does that connect with the broader idea of public administration in terms of what practitioners do? Now, historically, there's been a little bit of a connection between people within academia having somewhat of a practitioner background, but you kind of skipped over that a little bit. I'm kind of curious if that is something that you had wish you had more of, if you, you know, having some kind of a practitioner background and experience might be a good thing. What might that kind of entail for the work that you've done over time? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have spent a good chunk of my career talking to practitioners, dealing with practitioners, but actually relatively little time actually being a practitioner, although I did spend some time in the VA in the transition between the Obama and the Trump administrations. And so when people try to figure out what political party that I'm part of or which one I represent, I've, I've actually worked for both administrations and I have always tried to be uh, an equal opportunity offender on both sides. So <laughs> if anybody who tries to guess which side I'm on, they're probably going to guess wrong. But from the very, actually before I even finished my dissertation, I was spending a lot of time working with the people in the city of New Haven as they were devising a strategy for the community development block grant program. 
And I was working with a pretty distinguished but young political scientist whose name was Stan Greenberg, who went on to become Bill Clinton's pollster and was working also with somebody else who was working for the mayor at the time. And uh, she was Rosa DeLauro, who went on to become a member of Congress from New Haven. And Rosa DeLauro and Stan Greenberg eventually married each other. And so way back at the beginning, my roots in, in practice stretched just to the beginning of my career. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to tr- help the city make better and smarter policy decisions and community development policy. There was even a, a great occasion where one of the things that happened was that they were really concerned that people in the local community development organizations and neighborhoods around the city were simply getting together and splitting up the money among themselves. And the mayor was concluding, there's got to be a better way than just good old-fashioned machine politics to be able to distribute money. So they brought a couple of us in, and we spent a lot of time working both with people in the neighborhoods and also getting some students some real experience in figuring out what it was that was actually happening. And we put together a, an instrument to help them make decisions better, which they then used. One day they went into a room, closed the door, split the money up among themselves, and used our device as a way to justify the decisions they already decided to make. <laughs> and so it was both a, a really interesting bit of experience about how it is that things actually work and an important piece that reinforced the, the work that Lindblom had always done, talking about the, the way that rationality works when it ends up colliding with the realities of politics. And so I've been spending my time from the very beginning, even from the time before I finished my PhD, trying to, to work with and talk with practitioners so I understood the kind of problems that they dealt with. So I've, I've tried always to make sure I, I didn't wander too far from the realities of the kind of problems they were trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, out of curiosity, why did you go into, like, I suppose your PhD is actually in political science rather than public administration. Right. Why is it that you chose the field that you did? It was a good question. I'd been an undergraduate at Yale and uh, was actually for a time thinking about going to law school and had a very wise uh, faculty member that I talked to over in the law school who said, look, if you don't really think that you want to practice law, then I'm not really sure that going to law school is a good use of your time. And the more I thought about it, the less I was sure I actually wanted to practice law and the more that I was interested in questions of policy. And at the time when I was studying, I had a chance to be able to work with the the likes of Stan Greenberg and Doug Yates. I had people like uh, Bob Dahl who were working on the issues of city politics at the time. Ed Lindblom was doing a lot of his really pivotal work at the same time. So it was a very exciting place to be. And I had the chance to work with Jim Fessler as well, who had this just outstanding reputation for being the kind of people that, uh, the kind of person that, that so many great political scientists ended up working with. So I figured, hey, I can't do better than this, a combination of policy and political science, both at the same time. And it seemed to me that it would probably, it was going to be a lot of fun. And that turned out to be right. So it turned out to be a, a great decision. And uh, at the time, also when back in the dark ages, when I went to graduate school, there really wasn't the kind of, of sharp division, as I think exists now, between political science and public administration and public policy, uh, especially at a department like Yale, there were people who did all of the above. And so it was not only not a matter of having to decide one versus another, but it turned out to be a great place where it was possible to do all of that. So that's what I actually decided to do. Yeah, that's a good point, Don. I was lucky enough with my training to have a political science, public policy, and public administration 
background where there wasn't much tension. But, you know, one of the things we're really hoping to have as a goal for the podcast is a behind the curtains uh, look for students. And in many students who are in PhD programs, uh, they're in programs where there is that tension between uh, political science and public administration. Do you have any advice for the, how they can help bridge the gaps between the two? Because I see a lot of uh, interesting and beneficial outcomes down the line uh, where we all need to work together um, on research and practice. Well, exactly. And I'm, I'm really sad to see those tensions develop. Anybody who knows the history of the field knows that there were four founding subfields in, in political science way back at the beginning when the American Political Science Association was created. And one of them, as it turns out, was public administration. And it was not American politics. It was public administration from the very beginning. And so if you look, think about where it is that, that political science came from, it turns out that public administration was at the core at the very beginning. And understanding and in a sense, rediscovering those roots, I think, is incredibly important. The, the tragedy of the gap between that is that it, there's so much in, in politics that only has its meaning in terms of the way in which it's implemented. So much of public policy really only comes alive when people actually carry out programs. If you want to understand the politics, the way in which things operate, then you've got to understand the way in which it is brought to life through the administrative process. But then if you want to understand the administrative process, you have to understand the realities of American politics. And if you have any doubt about that, all you have to do is just look at the understanding of what happened with the Affordable Care Act and understand what could possibly go wrong with the administration's biggest, most important, proudest to be applauded kind of initiative with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which then crashed on its first day because they didn't design a website that worked. And on the other side, they ended up bringing a team of people, and in 90 days, they managed to find a way to fix it. Imagine how different the politics would be on the one side if the administration had dealt with the administrative realities from the very beginning. On the other hand, imagine how different the administration would have been if the politics had been brought in much more clearly from the very beginning, too. So there's so much that there really is for these sides to really have a chance to be able to, to share with each other, and they'd be much better off. Now, the question that you ask is, what kind of advice to give younger scholars who have to deal with the realities? And uh, the fact is, unfortunately, there, there are these sharp realities that so often end up differentiating both political science from policy and policy from administration. But my sense is that increasingly, the field is pushing back to some fundamental questions. And the, the best advice, wherever it is and whatever disciplinary home that younger scholars find themselves in, the thing that's most important, I think, is to try to ask, why does this matter? How is this going to affect ordinary people? What kind of policy impacts is this going to have? And are the questions that I'm working on important? It's a bit of a truism now, but we don't want to have the questions that we look at be defined by the research methods that we use. It's terribly important to pick the research methods that we employ to fit the problems we're trying to address. And what's happened, I worry, is that the that the methods and problems issues have, have fallen out of sync with each other. And it's the, the methods that are driving the questions that people ask. And that means that increasingly, the, the questions are falling out of sync with the things that policymakers need to worry about. On the other hand, policymakers are, are just incredibly impoverished in trying to solve the problems that they most need to care about because there's not very much research around 
for them to be able to focus on. I talked to some fairly high-level people in the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, and they said, you know, at the beginning of the transition, I was sure there's a big literature that was out there, and I'd be able to go in and dig in and find answers to the questions that I needed. And as I started looking, I just couldn't find what it is I needed to know. And on the other hand, we've got people in the academic world who are saying, I want to try to find ways of doing research that's going to have some policy impact, and people don't seem to be paying much attention to my research. That is a bridge that we can cross, but we have to build it from both sides and making sure that we, we ask the right questions and then produce the answers in a way that are going to be useful and intelligible to policymakers on the other side. And so the, the best advice, I think, is that it's, I believe, not only possible but important to do research that's theoretically informed and methodologically sophisticated, but which focus on, on real-life, real-world problems that have real impact and that we express with the answers in terms of the kinds of things that people from the outside world, mere mortals who haven't maybe taken the, the third course in, in methods and statistical techniques, can actually pick up and understand. And I think that's the opportunity that we have to present ourselves with. I'm going to play devil's advocate just slightly kind of out of this. My experience before going back to graduate school, I worked on the Hill for a number of years. Well, first as a legislative aide for Senator Bob Graham, then as a legislative aide for Congressman Alan Boyd. And Congressman Boyd was the ranking Democrat in the House Appropriations at the time. And so we were always kind of dealing with budget stuff in different kind of ways, everything from trying to make allocations for agriculture. You know, why do we bail out farmers? You know, anything and everything under the sun that you can kind of imagine that falls into the federal budget process. Why I ended up going to academia as an individual stems in part from me kind of going, wait a second, we have these questions. We're doing things the way we do, but nobody has really come up with a better way of doing it. And part of my interest was figuring out that better way. And then I get into the academic side of things and everybody's focused not necessarily on solving the problems that the academics were focused on, but more kind of being a little bit with that a lot of people don't have that practitioner experience. And so they're going through directly to, into grad school and onwards without necessarily taking the time to engage and figure out what is actually useful and interesting to everybody else. And it's the methods, it's the process that drives them in rather than the questions and the stealing from Perry a little bit, you know, the public service motivation to trying to help the governments and people in the governments do better. You know, I don't disagree at all about that. And it's not at all. I, I want to make really clear because it'd be easy, maybe, I think, to, for, for people to criticize what I'm saying as being somehow, somehow anti-methodological. But I don't think that you, if you, if you pick up the, the right kinds of methods that you end up necessarily being blinded to the wrong questions, or if you pick up the right questions that mm -hmm. you end up being blinded by just a pursuit of methodolog methodology. But I think what's happening is that we have, I think, an increasing instinct and maybe even increasing demand to produce research that is increasingly on narrower and narrower questions because they're driven and defined by the data sets that we can get our hands on and by the methodological techniques that seem to be somehow cutting edge. And we ought to use the cutting edge methods when they work, and we ought to use the best, the absolute best data sets that we can get. But so often, if we end up just defining the work that we do by uh, data sets that were put together a long time ago with cutting edge methodologies, we end up often working on questions that are, are old and not necessarily of practical impact today. And on the other hand, it's possible, I think, to 
to do really sophisticated methodological work, as you point out, that is also policy-informed and that can inform policy if we make a conscious effort to try to draw a connection between the two. And there are also are people out there in the world of practice who, who desperately need our help, who really want to try to get reinforcements, or are happy to try to find ways of opening up the data sets if we can only just find ways of making that connection and convincing them that there's, there's real value in having the conversation to begin with. So I, mean, I think that there really is uh, a need to try to figure out what kind of questions do we want to try to answer, what kind of problems do we need to solve, what kind of data can we use to solve it with, what kind of methods can we use to shine. And then, as you point out, are there methods that we can use to try to open doors that maybe people in the policy world hadn't even thought about? But it's that conscious effort to try to make the connection between the two that I think we need to spend much more time focusing on. And, and my worry is that too often, in fact, we just simply have, have, have lost the connection between the two. And uh, it's, uh, I've, I've just have talked to too many practitioners who say they've, they've given up reading the stuff that we write because they don't find the stuff that we write very interesting. And that, that's, that's not a very useful place to be. And it's a place where a lot of the people who founded the field would have been aghast to discover that anybody was even suggesting. I agree. One of my uh, methods professors that I had during my master's program started off the course with, uh, the, with telling us that the main method was KISS, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it always made me feel bad, but, the, the, uh, but the, he was really intense about it. And, uh, you know, the uh, question should drive the method, not the method driving the questions. And it worries me and um, when we look at a number of our PhD programs, when they're making changes or when new ones are coming in place today, that they're adding additional methods coursework at the expense of classes such as political institutions and public policy. And that really worries me when we have you know, these big questions that we need to answer and we're focusing a lot of our attention on methodology. And one of those big questions that you've been tackling over the last few years, Don, is this question of public trust and the reasons for the public's distrust in government and what we can do to uh, improve that. Do you want to talk on that a little bit? That's a really important question because there is this sense that, and it's clear if you look at the Gallup poll results and others, that trust in government is, is bad, that it's getting worse, that uh, only about something like 18 to 20 percent of the people actually trust Congress to, to do anything good, according to some polls, and some polls it's even worse than that. Uh, it turns out that public support for Congress is lower than for head lice. The Washington Post actually did a, did a survey of that, actually. <laughs> you, beat, you beat me to it. I was going to mention that the one a couple of years ago. I still use that in my class. It's uh, worse than head lice, uh, the band Nickelback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Head, even head lice, head lice and colonoscopies, too, on top of that. And <laughs> So, I mean, Congress, Congress is bad, and it's, we're in a bad state of affairs if we don't trust our institutions to produce good results. And uh, the, more than once in the last few weeks, I've thought I noticed some seismic activity in the middle of Virginia that's probably James Madison spinning in his grave. I mean, he just would be, he would be just terrified by this. But on the other hand, and if you start digging around, the question is, okay, what do you do? And it turns out that some of the research suggests that one of the problems with distrust in government in general is based in income inequality. And so for those of us in the field of public administration, the answer is, well, well, what, what do we do about that? Well, we need to improve income inequality. Well, most of us don't get a chance to make the decisions that do that. 
So here we are finding ourselves, in some cases, paralyzed by our inability to be able to do what we want to do because of declining trust in government. And where the answer to try to solve the problem of trusted government involves variables we can't control. And so this is a really desperate situation, unless you start digging a little bit deeper. And it turns out that as you start looking, there is this problem of distrust at the wholesale level that operates at the level of both institutions like Congress and, and big kinds of phenomenon like the, the role of talk radio and uh, talking heads on TV. But on the other hand, one of the things that the Congress scholars teach us is that people really don't like Congress in general, but they do pretty much like their member of Congress. And why is that? Because well, they think that their member of Congress is out there working against everybody else to try to bring some stuff home for their district that people will really care about. And it turns out that the degree to which people who work in administration produce solid results that really matter to citizens. If it turns out that we have a problem with getting snow removed and the people who are in charge of removing snow do a pretty good job, we may not trust government very much, but that's okay. Uh, my wife and I just had the point, case of our passports running out and we needed to reapply to get the passports reinstated. Turns out that they have this really handy thing online where you can print out the forms and not only instead of printing out the forms and filling them in, you could fill them out uh, on screen, print them out, and then mail them in with your old passport. You need, of course, a, a new photo, but they've got instructions for doing that. And I found an app that I was able to use. And so we just went around the corner, found a nice clean background. We were able to use our iPhones to take the photos, set it in. Two weeks later, we get our brand spanking new passports. And so we may conclude that as a technical matter, government in, in general sucks. but you know, the passport people did a pretty good job by us. And so that I trust and that I like. So it turns out, and this is important for those of us in administration, we may not be able to do much about the broad patterns of income inequality. And we can't deal with the battles between Fox News and CNN, but we can both train our students and then figure out ourselves how to help construct administrative systems that work better, delivering better results for citizens. And that is a good thing. And when we do that kind of a good thing, it turns out that people appreciate it. And it's not going to single-handedly solve the problem of trust, but it sure makes a difference on the margin. And since so much of what we do operates at the margin, it's something that we can actually produce results that matter in the end. And that, I think, given the, the broader scope of the problems we're dealing with, is in fact a very positive step forward. And so there, there is a not only some measure for hope in this problem of trust in government, but the really good thing for those of us who do public administration and public policy is that uh, for a change where so often we seem to be the, the last step in the food chain provides an opportunity for us to flip and become the first step. Become, we can become the, the place where the process of trust in government gets rebuilt in the interactions one step at a time in the way in which citizens interact with government. And that's a pretty good thing. Yeah, I, I uh, definitely agree. And I see it also at the, um, the micro level with uh, our MPA programs and our MPA programs uh, being active in their communities. And you have, what, over 200 accredited MPA programs throughout the nation as part of NASPA that could be active in the communities, building that uh, trust bottom up. And many of them are right now. So you, you talked about interaction with the, uh, you know, with the passport issue. And I'm, we're having to do that right now, my wife and I in South Carolina, because the 
uh, we live in South Carolina. Our driver's license in South Carolina will we won't be able to fly next year with it because they ha- they've 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 spent this much time before they've updated. So we're going to be in another nation, basically. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, can you talk a little bit about how um, faculty working in uh, MPA programs around the nation can uh, improve trust in their local governments? I think and that's that's an important part. Not only is there this opportunity for people who are in public affairs programs, working in public administration in particular, to be able to build from the bottom up, but to be able to understand and teach their students that what they do matters. For example, we live we live in Austin now, and we moved to town, and a week after we got here, we got a boil water advisory because it had rained so much that the local water treatment system was just overwhelmed. And so they, first of all, if you can talk about climate change, but if one of the implications of climate change is that you turn on the tap and you can't drink the water, that's, that's a bad thing. And it's the kind of thing that can be only taken care of by working on improving the way in which water treatment systems work at the local level. In the short run, as they were working on trying to get that fixed, it turned out that we went to the grocery store to buy bottled water as everybody else was. And in the first day or so, I will tell you, I went to a bunch of stores and went to one drugstore where they just had a couple of six packs of water left. So I snapped up a couple. I figured, this is terrible. What are we going to do? Because drinking boiled water for, for weeks on end is not very pleasant. But in a couple of days, went down to the local grocery store, big chain HEB here is the, the the biggest grocery store chain in all of Texas. And HEB managed to get not only water in, but had water on sale and had it stacked to the ceiling. And it turns out that they had an emergency response plan in the private sector, in this grocery chain, to bring water in whenever it was needed and to do it in a way that made people feel, you know, it's stacked up the ceiling. There's no big crisis here, as opposed to we're going to gouge you if that's assuming you can find the water to begin with. A partnership, as it turns out, between government and the private sector to solve some of the problems. And it turned out to be, well, well this isn't so bad. After all, it's just it's a pain to have to sit there and try to deal with this issue. But it turns out that a partnership between government and the private sector was the way that a lot of people responded to it. So that first, the, the broad issues of climate change become very real when it turns out that you turn on your tap and you can't drink the water that comes out. Turns out that the short-term partnership with a private company is the way that the government deals with it in the short run. If you have an effective partnership, it turns out if that partnership works well, then it can diminish the sense of panic. But then there's a final piece where it turns out that what if you're relatively poor and buying water is a problem financially? What if water is only available at places that are at the end of bus routes and when you get there, they have sold out temporarily? What, how do you dis- redistribute that? How do you try to deal with the big questions of people who don't get paid because they have to show up at grocery stores or supermarkets or or she at restaurants where uh, because the, the water is not safe to drink, you can't, for example, open up a Starbucks and because the water is not safe to drink or you can't boil enough of it to be able to keep a Starbucks in operation. What if the restaurant is not open because you can't wash the dishes in the back. And so the dishwashers who are working at minimum wage are not getting paid. It turns out that people who care about issues of ethics and values in our business can look at the basic questions of service delivery and see questions of inequality 
and service delivery and problems that we are in a position to be able to scope out and understand. So it turns out if, if you're interested in trust, if you're interested in the questions of values, if you're interested in the questions of effectiveness, if you're interested even in broad questions like climate change, it turns out all to, to come together in the way in which we turn on our water taps and what happens and what doesn't when that happens. And that's something across the country that, that all of us have an opportunity to teach our students to research, to study, to understand, and for our students to be able to go out and do things in ways that actually have real life impact on the citizens who are there are around us. And that, I think, is pretty exciting. We, we can write one more paper about what might be happening with the changes in climate and temperature and weather and warming and the implications for what's going to happen with whether or not it rains or not and hurricanes and the rest. But if, on the other hand, it comes down, to use a bad pun, if it comes boiling down to just what happens with what happens when you turn on a tap, that's something that we can deal with, that our students do deal with. And I sure hope we're training enough of our good students to be able to deal with these questions right on the front lines. You know, that brings me to another question. Can you talk about some ideas you may have on how young scholars and students, but all the way up to people who run academic programs and who are involved in tenure and promotion decisions, help set up structures where people are rewarded for this kind of work, this engagement, this outreach, to where we're just not writing that next academic paper for it. We're doing the paper and doing the empirical research and describing how the world works, but then we're going out there and we're trying to change it. That's a great question because ultimately the argument against doing some of this is, well, I'm sure this is all very interesting. And it may even be the sort of thing that we need to work on in our community. But if I do it, can I get tenure? And that, I think, is an existential question for us and for our field. And I think that the answer lies in a couple of respects. The first is that senior people in the field have to take a leadership role to make it safe for younger scholars to take on those questions, to do good research, and to get tenure. The senior scholars have got to be willing to step forward and to play a leadership role to make sure that that kind of research is safe. But if you're a younger scholar, can you do, in fact, good research that is tenurable? And I think there the question is, uh, is self-evidently yes. How does the relationship between the sort of big chain supermarkets and big box stores and government agencies in the middle of crises operate? How does that work? I'm not sure I've seen a paper on that. But it turns out that after Katrina, it was Walmart that figured out how to try to get the food chains working again and the supply chain operations working more effectively. It turns out Home Depot now has its own emergency operations center that it gears up if there's a chance of a hurricane. It turns out that this grocery chain in Texas I've described has its own emergency response system. Has This is a pretty interesting question. I, I haven't seen a paper on that, but I think that a paper on that would not only get published, but would have a big amount of impact. Another set of things. Uh, if you look at the, the best places to work in the federal government, it turns out that NASA and the Department of Energy rank at the top, and the, the VA is and the Department of Homeland Security at the bottom. Why is that? Why are some places better to work than others and other places much less good to work than others? Because if you think about it, when it comes to the VA, what possibly could be more important than providing good, high-quality care to the veterans who have served our country? Is there, is there any mission in the government you can identify as being somehow should be easier to motivate people to do? But 
but yet we are in a situation where the VA and Homeland Security rank toward the bottom and NASA and Energy rank toward the top. There is an enormous data set that's out there and the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that talks about the motivation of employees and different kinds of indicators that drive them to work as they do. I would love to read a paper on that, but I haven't read that paper either, where that's a self-evidently important question. And so there are a lot of really, really, really interesting and important things out there where a junior scholar could sink his or her teeth into the question, produce good research, where the research would be published beyond question, where a body of knowledge could be built, where there's tenure to be made, and in the process, where the research would actually involve important questions and inform the kinds of decisions that policymakers have to make. And we'd all be a whole lot better off. And they might even be more interesting papers to read than some of the things that otherwise might be produced. I wonder if part of that comes back to this idea that people in government a lot of times have a little bit distrust of people either in the private sector or in the education sector coming back and asking for access to data. So, you know, I know in my experience, I do a lot of stuff with the military, but I also do a lot of stuff with county governments in Florida. You know, Florida has sunshine law. So if the county government has it, you know, they are willing to you know, hand it over. And people who are from Florida have this idea and the expectation that if the data is there, they should be able to get access to it. But you can see the academics who aren't from Florida, who they moved to the state, still kind of treat it as a separate thing of, oh, well, we can't do this because there's not data. Because they haven't really learned that the government is actually not only willing, but will actually go ahead and give them whatever they want because they're required by law to. Compare that to other places where people have been more hesitant to hand over data from their organization because people misuse it. So I think of things like the VA, where you have people's criticisms of the VA makes the VA probably a little bit more or less willing to hand over their data to people, or at least people think that they're less willing because they don't want to have the criticism that comes along with it. Yeah, and it's you're exactly right, because this is this is not an easy question. And I there are a couple of different ways of coming at this. The first is If you think about it from inside a government agency and somebody comes and asks you for information about yourself, your first reaction may very well be, if I turn this over, what kind of bad thing could possibly happen to me? It could end up on the front page of a newspaper. I could end up being embarrassed. could end up making us look bad. The person says that she or he is an academic, but how do I really know whether or not they've got an axe to grind? If I cooperate, will I be embarrassed by this? And so the first instinct is likely to be, well, you know, I'm, I'm not quite so eager to turn this information over. And then it creates a sense of conflict where the researcher files a freedom of information request to get hands on the data, but that becomes contentious and full of conflict. And so that becomes a problem back and forth. So, so that's the first thing that happens often. And the second is that I frankly talked to a, a practitioner a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about the idea of getting access to some data, and it turned out, although the person was a little bit too polite to say this, that the last time somebody had asked for the data and they had provided the information, it turned out that the the academic was saying, well, we'll help you with problems that you care about, but it turns out that the, the people on the inside felt like they were spending a lot of their own energy just simply helping to produce something that would help an academic's career that didn't produce much of value to them. Right. And so there's this question about, well, is this, this is great, but it's a huge amount of our energy that we're going to have to invest on something that we're not going to really benefit from. So we got limited amount of time and energy. We're going to spend it on what it is that benefits us most. But ultimately, if we can step back, 
Uh, th- there are people in government who really understand that they are better off by being able to get better research on the things that they care about and that providing data sets that allow people to work on that is an opportunity. Uh, the federal government right now has something called the GEAR Initiative, G-E-A-R, and their idea is to try to find ways of improving the contact between academics and practitioners because they think that more research is likely to produce better public policy, and they're interested in trying to find ways of making that happen. So, so that's a big impact, a big force there. And there, and this is something that for those of us around the country who aren't in Washington right now, I, I don't know a city manager or a state government official, a mayor, a county exec, a executive of a water authority or somebody who runs an airport operation who doesn't have a whole set of really big and complicated problems for which they need help and where if there's a relationship of trust that gets built up between the researcher on the one side and the, and the person in government on the other, that there isn't an opportunity for sharing information in ways that make both sides better off. And so that the opportunity for helping students get experience, helping that experience base pro- provide a relationship of trust, having that relationship of trust generate an opportunity for doing more research with better data, and where better research and better data helps the people who are actually doing the work of government get get answers that they need and then help to strengthen that that virtuous partnership all the way along the line. Mm-hmm. That's something clearly that we can and I think should do much more of. And on top of everything else, not only is it material that can help students get real jobs, can help academics get real research papers done, but frankly, and this is just me, but it's also just a whole lot more fun than what most of the other alternatives are, because sitting and wrestling with some of these things mean you're involved in lots more interesting conversations that would otherwise be the case. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. Uh, what, what do you see yourself working on in the near future? Do you see yourself continuing these discussions? In a way, everything relates back to trust, but um, what do you see yourself working on over the next uh, couple of years? Well, part of it really is a matter of trying to figure out how we can how we can do things to develop more trust in what government does. And part of it has to do with understanding how we can try to most fundamentally deal with what I think in many ways is one of the most interesting and fascinating puzzles in all of public administration, which is the question of human capital. Uh, I'm in the meantime working on a on a finishing up a book on federalism for Princeton University Press, which will be out in 2020. And so I'm going back to some of my very early work to try to look at what it is that federalism means today and how it's connected with the problems of solving issues of income inequality. So I'm finishing up a book on that right now. But I really see myself then really turning to one of the most fundamental and I think, unfortunately, most neglected questions in all of public administration, which is a question of public personnel administration of human capital and getting the right people in the right places with the right skills at the right time. To go back to what we were talking about earlier with the case of Obamacare, it turns out that the main reason why the Obamacare initiative failed on that first day with the website was that the decisions and the responsibilities for creating the website were given to people who didn't have the capacity for solving it. Imagine if from the very beginning we had attacked that problem in terms of let's get the right people with the right skills in the right place and the right time to get this problem solved. And they had latched onto that problem and solved it from the very beginning. So it wasn't a problem. Imagine on that first day that the Obamacare websites had worked, that people had signed up, 
that the politics of the situation had dramatically changed as a result of all that, that the problems of creating these healthcare exchanges around the country turned out not to become major crises because we had better human capital. Imagine where we would be right now. The, at the very least, it's very clear that this entire debate in the country over healthcare would be rem- remarkably and radically different compared to what it is now. And so uh, that is just a sign of just how important this issue is. And my guess is that the nature of government agencies, the nature of the world in which our students are going to be working in 10 years is going to be so dramatically different that we may not even recognize it. And we need to spend a lot of time trying to think about what that is, what that means, how to prepare them, and how to try to create a government that actually is going to work well to serve our citizens, because increasingly it's going to come down to the problem of making sure we have people with the right skills to be able to solve the problems that they're going to be facing. That's a great point. It is a really large, very broad issue that we have to kind of try and figure out how to overcome. There's a lot of research that goes into it. How as an academic and as an individual do you kind of go about the process of deciding what to work on, given that there is so much there, but then also how do you kind of balance what you're working on with the personalized, so kind of the work-life balance sort of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I think a lot of people get advice on doing is make sure you have a strategy for your career, you have a strategy for kind of research that you're going to follow, that you have a trajectory that you lay out. And I've never done any of that, to tell you the truth. I just, I, I've just, I've never followed any of that advice. It's good to hear. It, it may very well be great advice, but it's never been for me. And what's, what's happened is that I've tended to uh, just latch on to questions that seemed to me really interesting at the time and follow them until they've, I've had a chance to be able to wrestle with them. Sometimes that has then led to other kinds of issues that then I've tried to work on for the next project. But my career has been, I think, a little, uh, a little unpredictable because it's been unpredictable to me. I have never been sure from sometimes from one project to the next what I'm going to be doing next. I remember I did a, my first couple of books were on federalism and intergovernmental relations. I was at a job talk for a faculty member who was being recruited for Latin American politics. And I had one of the senior faculty members turn in to me and said, well, you guys in public administration are so smart. How come none of you guys has ever written a really good book on the single most important public administration institution that exists out there? So I looked at him and said, well, what's that? And he said, the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I thought about that. I said, You're right. There really isn't a good book, at least from the public administration and political science point of view about that. The economists have, but political scientists and public administration people haven't. And I ended up having just a great time doing something completely different all because essentially it was a dare from one of my senior colleagues about why people in the field hadn't tackled it. And so I have tended to, over the course of my career, to say, you know, it would be fun to work on this for a while. And most of the time when I've latched onto something, it has been fun working on it for a while. And then I'm looking on, on things that are fun. And that, when you get to the work, work-life balance question, is both a, a great answer and a terrible answer. <laughs> on, on the one hand, it's a great answer because since I've tended to pick projects that have been fun, I've usually had fun doing them. And so it's going to work as, as often not really seem much like work because I'm having fun when I'm doing it. But on the other hand, it does sometimes create some, some challenges and problems because this will seem strange to anybody who's not actually doing it. But sometimes you have so much fun doing it that 
then it, you don't spend as much time doing other things that maybe you ought to. I've discovered that sometimes the, some of the best ideas that I've ever gotten have come from either going for long walks with my wife or taking the dog out for a serious long hour long constitutional. And <laughs> somehow my dog has given me the, the very best ideas when I'm out there walking sometimes. So there's even some balance that you can find in that. For me, it's always been a matter of choosing projects that seem like fun and making sure I'm having fun while I'm doing it, which maybe sounds a little hokey, but I, I do think it's kind of, kind of true, at least in the case of my own work. You had mentioned that a lot of people you know, have their academic plans kind of set out and that you didn't do that. And as soon as you talk about everybody has this academic plan, I was like, oh, crap, I don't have one. I was like, I've never thought about that before. But, you know, there are people there. And I remember early in my career, I was I had this this really serious moment of, of self-doubt because I was reading somebody who had written somewhere that in the middle of an academic career, you really need to think very carefully about your strategy, about what kind of work that you're going to do, about how you're going to identify yourself. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do next. <laughs> and then I finally decided, you know, that's probably just as well. Maybe somebody else has got a 10-year plan for their research, but I don't because I just follow the questions that seem interesting with answers that seem to be promising and research that seems exciting. And as long as I'm excited, I'm, I'm likely to be able to uh, be able to at least write fairly well about it. I, I know that I tend to teach better if I'm excited about the subject matter. And uh, so a, a lesson that I learned, it also took me a little while to figure this one out, but the, the, the harder that I work to try to write, the, the less good the stuff that I did was. And on the other hand, the stuff that's come off the typewriter keys more easily the less effort I had to put out, that in general, the better it was. Which gets back to the important question at the beginning about the, the chapter that I wrote where I was in the heavy influence of drugs after surgery. It turned out that it was there in my head and it was just sort of flowing out and the drugs, if anything, helped to get to the keyboard faster. So there really is something about the, if the, you can conceptualize what you want to say and tell the story in as exciting as way as you can. And if you're excited about telling it, it's, you're not really having to, to labor huge, I mean, you, you have to work hard writing, but you're not sitting there having a miserable time doing it. The, the more fun that you're having, the better job you're probably doing. I think this is a great conversation to have for uh, students and our junior scholars, because I think so many, and I, it was the case with me, so many of them think that everything is planned out and senior scholars and people with a lot of experience and a lot of work had these five-year plans. But when in reality, it's more incremental and it's more um, life happening and career decisions and even where the work or where you live, just by what opportunities are open at that time, it's a, it's a lot less planned out. Often when we talk about it and when you hear people talk about it, they talk about it in terms of, well, I have this plan and I have this. So I think that's a really good discussion and comment for students and junior scholars to hear that it's good to have an idea where you're going, but it's really more incremental and do what you enjoy. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and the last thing I would ever do is to urge that somebody follow what it is that I did because <laughs> it's. I think it's a little risky to do what, I, what I've just talked about. But on the other hand, it's, it worked for me. It's been a whole lot more fun. And I'm also convinced that if I had had a, a narrow plan that I was trying to follow, that I would have missed opportunities along the way. And as I said, one of the one of the most fun books I ever did was the was my book on the Federal Reserve, and the idea that it essentially emerged from a dare over a dinner conversation 
was somebody in Latin American politics who was interviewing somebody else for a job and dared me to ask why it is that we hadn't actually focused on a question like that. Uh, I ended up just having an incredibly great time doing that book. And it was something that I, I just ended up learning such an incredible amount for and had a chance to talk to a lot of people, did a lot of interesting travel around to presidential libraries. Never would have done it if I had had a, a clear five-year plan because this, whatever my five-year plan would have been, it would not have been part of that. But on the other hand, I had a good time doing it. And, and I, if I had a chance to do it again, I would. A lot of academics kind of start off at one university and they might make one move, but a lot of them typically t- stay where they get their first job. Your mm-hmm. background is definitely different than that, where you've gone to a couple different institutions. And a big part of that has been because I've uh, taken uh, at least half of my career doing administrative work for universities and for public affairs programs. And part of that is that I've, I've always seen my role in part as trying to do research, part of it to do teaching, but part of it also to try to, to help build programs and to try to help in the process of building those programs to, to, to strengthen our ability to be able to train students for the future as well. So it's the, the fact that I've had a series of different jobs has largely been a product of the fact that I've had a series of different administrative responsibilities, directing programs and serving as dean. And it's one of those things where there's one of my favorite movies is Blazing Saddles. And there's this great scene at the end where they're sitting there talking to each other and says, well, I, my work is done here. I think it's time to move on. And, and that's where, in some cases, I've, I've made the decision to to take on a new job because my, my work seemed to have been done at one place and new opportunities opened up someplace else. Had to do largely with administrative challenges and responsibilities. And so when the time finished to finish up one job, another opportunity would open up and I followed in the basis of that. And, and in no way was that a part of any kind of conscious strategy either on top of that, but was a matter of just trying, trying to be sensible about opportunities as they presented themselves and think about whether or not they made sense, but then in a lot of ways doing what seemed to be fun. And you have a lot of administrative experience, Don. And one of the things that uh, Bruce and I have been concerned with um, in our work, our work for the Journal of Public Affairs Education is the, the lack of training or the lack of discussions we have in the field for individuals who are taking on that administrative responsibility. And we did a survey a couple of years ago to MPA program directors, and that was one of their main concerns was just no training or mentoring of them before they became MPA uh, program directors. So do you have any advice for faculty members who are thinking about going the administrative route? And the, the basic and most important piece of advice, I think, is to make sure you have a lot of friends <laughs> and friends that you can talk to. Uh, because if you think about this, this is a, a pretty weird business. You end up preparing for going into the world as an academic by spending time typically working alone. And so you go into something that could not possibly be more uh, collegial and more group-centered than, than teaching and working as a university faculty member, and you prepare for it by working solo. And you prepare for teaching by not doing any of it in many cases. Then you end up becoming a, a, a professor, and they ask whether or not you're going to get tenure, and you do it on the basis of whether or not you have a plan and whether you have one or not. And so most steps that we make along the way, we make without any real preparation for the next stage. There, People often end up getting administrative roles because 
and uh, people end up in a situation where, you know, uh, I've uh, he didn't screw up the last committee job we gave him. Maybe he'd be good about this, but he seems to get along with most people. And so, well, maybe he might be a good director. He doesn't seem to have too many enemies, but does that suggest any kind of real capacity for being able to do the job? And so people often end up getting into these responsibilities without, in many ways, having prepared themselves or having gotten any training for doing it. And that's the case, I think, especially for, for people who are deans or directors. There often are assistant directors, assistant deans, and other kinds of opportunities to be able to get some experience. And so you, people can get some sense about what it's like along the way. But more broadly, I think, how do you deal with that? And I think having other people to talk to who have been in that kind of role, people who are going through similar kinds of problems you can talk through issues with, people who can talk about how to, how to mentor junior faculty members, about how to try to deal with budget problems, how to try to deal with curriculum issues. Uh, just having, if you haven't been through it yourself, finding other people who have to be able to touch base with, that's an incredibly valuable thing. But it is, it's both immensely rewarding and incredibly important to our business because unless somebody takes these jobs on, the jobs simply are not going to get done. And if the jobs don't get done, that's very bad for, for all of us on top of that. So it's incredibly important that all of us think about how we work hard to generate the next generation of leaders who are going to be responsible for helping to carry our field forward because our field will only be what it is by the ability of people in it to help lead it. I like your comment on needing friends. I thought you were maybe going a different route that you may not have any after you take an administrative position. So you better stay close to the ones you have. That, that of course, is, is always the risk. You end up doing these jobs, and uh, some of these jobs can be thankless, but, uh, but doing it in a way that makes sure that you, and that's a good piece of advice. If you can, sometimes you got to make hard decisions, even if it, uh, and it would be tempting to say, you know what, uh, make the decision so to make sure that you have friends on the other end. But if you're doing that, then Sometimes you're not really making the hard decisions that help advance your, your program either on top of that. But friends of yours outside the institution where you are can help you figure out how to find your way through that question. I think back when I first became MPA director, if it wasn't for Doug Goodman, I probably would have curled up in a ball in the corner. <laughs> Absolutely invaluable. But you need people like that. And Doug was such a great guy. You just you need people like that to be able to to look at the questions that you face and figure out how to deal with them. Oh, absolutely. And it's stuff that as a professor without any administrative responsibility, you never really stop and think about in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, everybody knows that it's the, the dean or the director is responsible for making sure that the budget's there. You have the TA, you can make sure you have the happy hour, that you've got enough students, that the financial aid is there, that the curriculum works, that the provost and the president of the university stay off your backs. There are just all those questions and problems and puzzles and other things that come along with that, that with, without getting that right, uh, it's it, uh, the rest of what it is that we do doesn't happen well. And I think that's a great point about having a network of folks to talk with, to talk with in the field. And I think that's one of the strong points of our field that we are very open to talking to others who are in similar situations at other institutions or at our own institutions, but we're a pretty close network. And, and uh, my colleagues here at my institution from other fields are always surprised uh, when we're able to gather information from other MPA programs or other public affairs programs. And it's because we're such a close field and we help one another out most of the time. Most of the time. But it's yeah. good to have people like that who, who share that kind of problem and share, share the basic issues and concerns. That's the key to helping you find your way through. And it's, it is this community that is knit around 
the basic questions of public affairs and public service, providing research and training students. It's really a, a, a special way of being able to, uh, to to make a living that makes this, I think, all so much fun. Well, we are about an hour here, and I've got uh, faculty senate coming up. So, <laughs> speaking of administrative fun stuff, speaking of administrative things that make it so much fun, but that makes it so much more important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bruce, you want to close us out? Sure. Well, Don, thank you for joining us today. It's certainly been a great experience having you on the podcast with us. And it's been a great pleasure to be Will. Thanks to both you and Bruce for the chance to be able to have this conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's been just great fun having a chance to be able to talk with you. Thanks, Don. We've appreciated you being on. Positively. Well, thank you, and thanks for what you're doing, too, for the journal. That's an incredible contribution to the rest of us, too.